All right. Well, good morning. For those I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor of Newark Church. If I had to guess something about this community from the conversations we've had together, I'd go out on, I'd feel confident to say that this is a community that knows the importance of boundaries, that it's important. So as I was preparing this, we're going to talk about boundaries today. I thought, uh, I don't think I need to convince this community that boundaries are important. You know the importance of having boundaries around work and rest, right? Like it's something we've talked about for the past few months at least, the importance of Sabbath and making sure you have rest, creating that balance in your life, work and life balance, boundaries around how much you work and making sure you're taking time to recharge Sabbath and so on. You know the importance of relational boundaries, like, we use language today that nobody else used, like, in previous centuries. Like, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, I'm an ambivert, right? Like, we have all this, this terminology. Like, I'm a nine on the Enneagram, or I'm an ENFJ. And so we know so much about our personalities and our wiring of, like, when we need to be with others and when we need to recharge and be alone and need solitude. We know the importance of financial boundaries, how to steward finances and resources. Like, this is where I'm splurging too much. My bank can show me where I'm spending excessively and how to create boundaries around my spending and my saving and so on. I think I'm, I feel very confident to say, you know the importance of boundaries. But despite all of this, the resurgence of books and podcasts and content regarding boundaries, we can't help but exceeding our boundaries. And I don't think it's because we don't think it's important. I think it's because we don't really believe it's good. We don't believe that boundaries reflect the goodness of creation and the goodness of God. Because think about it. What the undercurrent of what you've been taught for most of your life is that you can do anything and be anything you want in life, right? What's something you're asked when you're young? What do you want to be when you grow up? Wow, sky's the limit, right? Like there was a time in my life I wanted to be the first Indian NBA basketball player. Then my genes caught up with me, and I realized, okay, <coughs> excuse me, when I realized I peaked at 5'8", that, oh, Muggsy Bogues, who was a basketball player, was 5'3", and he made it to the NBA, and he was the only, like, I think NBA player at 5'3", right? So, like, there are certain things, like, okay, what do you want to be in life? Well, the sky's the limit. I can be anything. I can do anything. I don't remember the statistic, but the amount of books that have been written in the last century on how to change the world compared to the other centuries combined, it's, it's staggering. We have a small view of the world and our ability to impact it in a way that previous generations did not. So the thought of limiting yourself, of having, having boundaries, of, of being a person made with limits, and that's a good thing, goes against the grain of everything you've been taught in life. Because after all, from a very young age, you can do anything you want, you could be anything you want, and boundaries will limit your potential and self-actualization. But today we'll see that we were made for boundaries. And reflects the goodness of creation and the goodness of God. We're in a series called Made for This, where every week we explore things for which God has made us. And today we'll see that he has made us with boundaries. And if you're going to embrace them, if you're going to go from knowing that it's important to actually embracing them, you're going to have to start seeing that it's good for you. It's actually good for you. It stems from the goodness of creation and the goodness of God. Let's look at the first one. Boundaries reveal the goodness of creation. I'm going to read Genesis 1, 1 through 5 for you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. 
and God separated the, separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So as we read the creation account, we discover that God creates boundaries around the things that he has made. It's all over creation. He makes and then he separates things. Light from darkness, day and night, morning and evening. It's not here because we don't have space to include it all here, but we later on see that he separates waters from the sky, sea from the land, fish of the air, and then birds of the sea. He creates that distinction. And ultimately, male and female, as the, he made Eve out of the rib of Adam. And so you see that God creates and he separates. And in doing so, not only has he designed creation with boundaries, but he looks at all of those things in its own distinctness and separation and boundary form and says, it is good. Andrew Wilson is an author. He wrote in an article for uh, the Gospel Coalition how each thing ends up accentuating the other, right? The, the, the night accents the day in a, in a way that uh, it couldn't on its own. The, similarly, the day bring, brings out the goodness of night or maybe things in the, the, in the night that the day can't on its own. You, you see the, the, infant, the, the glorious, uh, uh, the vastness of the sky, and it actually ha has an impact on the way that you see yourself as well, right? Like each thing accents each other. He, said, he ultimately says that this happens in male and female, how they're different and how the male brings out something in the female and the female brings out something in the male in the way that they're designed. And then he gets to this quote, there is a fit, a mutual enhancement, a beautiful difference at the heart in what God has made. So it's good to acknowledge the goodness of God's creation. And what that means, if you're going to acknowledge the goodness of creation, is what we are and what we're not. What we can do and what we cannot do. All of our potential, but also the limits and the boundaries that God has given us. And this leads to the first explicit boundary that God gave Adam and Eve. Let's read chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 and 15 through 17. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the first command, the first boundary that God gave Adam and Eve, right? And in doing this, he is perfectly consistent with the way that he has created everything. Everything has boundaries, day and night, right, what exists in a day, right, the land and the sea, fish of the air, birds of the sea, and so on. Everything has boundaries, and it's perfectly consistent. In, in some sense, he's calling them to live within the boundaries that, that he has created, and this is a good thing. But Adam and Eve wanted to exceed their boundaries. They desired godlike wisdom, and they were told that eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would make them like God. And here's the thing we're going to discover. It did. It actually did make them like God. But Instead of making them wise, it made them fools. They wanted wisdom. It's not written here, but it says that when, when Eve saw the tree, that it was good for making one wise, she took and ate of it, reached out, and it actually had the effect of making them both fools because the Bible says 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means the beginning of wisdom is to revere and, God, revere and regard God as the most important person to consider. And this is an attempt to become wise by disregarding God, by not fearing him. And therefore, yes, they did become like God, but they also became like fools. This became self-defeating. Now, I want to address an objection that's normally raised anytime we read a passage like this, all right? There's usually an objection at this point, like, why did God do it? Like, why put the tree there in the first place? Like, you tell them that don't eat of this tree, and it's going to, surely when you eat of it, you're going to die. Like, you didn't have to do that. Why did you do that? Why create a tree that would devastate creation? And there's some common explanations. I think all of them have merit to some degree. One is, well, this was all a part of his plan. Yeah, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to eat of this tree and they were going to disobey, but God knew what he was ultimately going to do in Jesus, and this ultimately serves his cosmic plan. I think that's true. Others would say, well, this is the only way that freedom can be genuine, right? Like, they had to have an opportunity to disobey. And I don't know so much about that. I don't know if you need the opportunity to disobey to be truly free, right? Like, God is the freest of all beings, but he doesn't have to surround himself with temptations in order to be free, right? And to be free is to be like God, which is to want what is good and beautiful and just and loving at all times, right? And so having more opportunities to not be like that doesn't make us more free, but I get what they're saying, right? Others would say, well, it's about moral development, so they could actually become moral. How do you know if they're good unless they have the opportunity to actually show that they are good, now, all of them have merit, but I think it also misses something. This tree probably just had a good purpose. It probably gives you knowledge of good and evil. There's another tree that's mentioned here. It's called the tree of life, and we later discover that it actually gives the people uh, the ability to live forever. So if that tree, the tree of life, gives you the ability to live forever, why wouldn't the tree of knowledge of good and evil give what it says and to, like live by its name that it gives you the knowledge of good and evil? But... Such knowledge is not bad in and of itself. It's just dangerous in the wrong hands. Like, imagine if I told my kids, you can have anything in the kitchen. Just don't touch the knives, right? It doesn't mean that knives only serve malevolent purposes. Like, it's only used for evil. No, it can cut cucumbers. It can cut fruit and other things. Like, they, there are good reasons to have, to have knives, but it's just not safe in their hands, right? Like, it was, there's probably some purpose for it, that's good and holy, and it's not there just to entice them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That it's not just because God says you're going to die if you eat of it doesn't mean that there wasn't some other purpose for it. Boundaries were a part of paradise, and I think sometimes we think that boundaries are, are a result of the fall, that somehow if there is a boundary in my life, it's inhibiting me, it's not good for me. No, it was a part of paradise. It's designed into the fabric of all of creation. It reveals the goodness of creation. The fact that we exceed them isn't in, in an indictment on boundaries, it's an indictment on us, that there's a problem within and what this tree promises them is often at the heart of our desire to exceed our boundaries. You will be like God. God even acknowledges in verse 22 that they became like God. Let's read it, verse 22. The very bottom there. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. I'll read verse 23. It's awkward to stop there. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So 
they did become more like God, but this had a weakening and diminishing effect upon them. I would love, I would love for my children to enjoy the freedom that I enjoy, right? Um, but I know that at this stage, it would have a diminishing effect upon them, even if they became more like me in the freedom that I enjoy. For example, it's not atypical for them in the evenings when we're finally trying to put them to bed to come back out into the living room and say, how come you guys get to stay up late at night and watch TV? And I say, because I pay the rent, child. <laughs> That's not what I say. It's more, it's more parent-like than that, right? Now, if they had uninhibited freedom to watch whatever they want, whenever they wanted, in some sense they would become more like me, but it would have a diminishing or a weakening effect upon them because they lack the maturity to know what to do with that agency and freedom and autonomy. There are ways that we exceed our boundaries and our desire to be like God, but we don't realize that in some way it has a diminishing and a weakening effect upon us. And we come up against those limits. Gosh, I just wish I had more hours in the day. Oh, I wish I could just, I could just have more energy and more focus for whatever it is that I want to do, but I can't. And whenever you try to exceed that, it will have some kind of weakening effect. Isn't that something? That you can become more like God, you can become more successful in that regard and becoming more like God, but it ends up weakening you. Boundaries reflect the goodness of creation. Similarly, when Adam and Eve became more like God, it ended up being catastrophic for them. It wasn't good for them. Uh, there was a podcast a couple of years ago that I listened to. It's called A Hidden Brain by uh, the host of Shankar Vedantam. And he was talking about a tunnel vision that's caused by scarcity in our lives. In it, there are two professors who were studying this, the tunnel vision created by scarcity. One was from Harvard, the other is from Princeton. And they had a theory that whenever there's something that you feel is very important that's missing in your life, you can become obsessively focused on that one thing. Like whenever there's a scarcity of something and that's important to you, you, you have this tunnel vision that you have an obsessive focus upon it. And the tunnel vision that's created is you start neglecting other important things in your life. There's a, the, 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 most of the podcast was centered upon how this affects the poor, those who lack financial resources. There's often a judgment cast upon them like, why don't they help more with their, their kids' homework or why is it that they can't plan for the future? It's because when you see a scarcity of something like financial resources, you're so focused on stretching that dollar, so focused on making ends meet that you neglect other things that maybe if you have financial resources, you wouldn't neglect. So maybe you don't think about long-term planning. They, there's, there are actually studies to show that people who lack financial resources know how to find a deal. They're great at finding deals in ways that people who are more wealthy do not. They excel in one thing. They become obsessively focused on one thing, and they, they put all their energy into it, but they may ne neglect other things because money is what's scarce. But it's not the only resource that we experience scarcity. They, they follow others as well. For example, there was a woman, her name Katie, not her real name, I guess, and the limited resource there was time. She's a medical student. And it had a similar effect on her because the scarcity she felt was with time. There are things that she began to neglect in her life as she was in medical school. She was so focused on, and on her professional success that she kept forgetting to buy groceries. And she let a pile of filthy laundry pile up. Like, I, I was in a med school, but I experienced that. I remember my clothes would go from the bed 
time to go to sleep, and then it would go to my desk. And then when it was time to study, from my desk, back on to my bed again. I mean, it's just been, people would ask, like, how do you live like that, you know? And like, who, who raised you? Well, it's because when there's a scarcity of something, you have such a tunnel vision on it, you can't, you feel like anything else. Unpacking your suitcase is just de- too demanding. Like, you can't do it. Health and exercise, what? Like, who's got time to go jogging? Because you're so focused on what you lack. In both situations, focusing obsessively on one thing and even excelling in that can have a diminishing effect upon us. So you grind at work. What's happened to your relationships recently? Who has known you and loved you and prayed for you? Or what's happened to your in church community, like your experience of this community as a family because of that? Sure, maybe you're, you're, you're boundless in some areas of your life, but what, what about your physical health or your relationship with God? Like Adam and Eve, we could be driven by an overwhelming sense that, of what we are not without realizing, like in their case and ours, they're already like God. They're the only ones in all of creation that were made like God, but they could only see what they were not. They could only see what they lacked, and their obsessive focus upon that had a diminishing and weakening effect. Discontent with their boundaries, they decided to exceed exceed them, and it ended up weakening them. They couldn't see the goodness in it. Can you? Here are some questions. Take a minute to think about it. What boundaries are you exceeding right now in your life? What are they? They're all different. Some might be moral, moral boundaries, clear moral implications. If you're a Christian, especially based on God's word and what you know is revealed in his word, maybe you're exceeding moral boundaries that God has given you. And you don't realize what you're looking for when you're doing it. Maybe they're physical. Maybe you just need to take a nap. They're physical boundaries that you keep exceeding. What if they're relational? You're trying to be everywhere for all people at all times, And it's catching up with you. And what you really need is to accept your limits and just have some solitude. Be alone. Or be with at least a smaller group of people where you're more at ease, where you don't have to be on, where you could just be with people who love you and know you. Or maybe you're alone too much and you realize that God has made you for relationships and what you need is people. You need to get away from your solitude and and lean more into community. If boundaries can be seen all over creation, why wouldn't it be good for us too? What do you have to say no to in order to say yes to God's design? Now let's look at the second thing. Boundaries reveal the goodness of creation, but they also reveal the goodness of God. Let's read chapter 1, 29 through 30, 2, 15 through 17 again, and then that last section, chapter 3, 21 through 23. Starting from verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. Let's read verse 15. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day of it you eat of it, you shall surely die. The final section. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So what do we see here? God gave them everything. Like whatever is on the earth, your experience of it is yours. Every tree, every plant bearing fruit and every seed is yours. It's for yours to take. You can eat everything but except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it may not strike us, especially if you are a Christian and you live uh, in some kind of Christianized West. Like, this might not be particularly striking, but in the time, especially compared to other creation accounts, this would have been striking. Because in the ancient world, humans provided foods for the gods. And so to have a creation story where God in his generosity and his love provides food for hum humanity shows his unbounded goodness and generation, ge generosity. And the boundary here is also for our good. Notice in verse 21 and 23 again that he creates now a new boundary. This doesn't mean that the tree of life was evil because he created a boundary around it because it had now become dangerous in their hands as the tree of knowledge of good and evil was as well. God said he was going to guard the tree of life so that they would not live forever in this perpetual state of rebellion. This boundary that he created, we can now see, was a part of his goodness. The boundary he created overflowed from the goodness of God. Before we saw it was the goodness of creation, and now we explicitly see God creating a boundary around the tree of life, and it also overflows out of his goodness. But do you see the boundaries that God has given you as an expression of his goodness and love? I mean, I, again, I, I know it's hard, because you have a desire to, to be all you can be, and to be all you can be means being anything other than you are now. You're not enough is what you believe. That's the undercurrent of what you believe, that you are not enough. And so everything you do, every life hack, every self-help book, everything you try to, to incorporate in your life is to somehow be better. I'm not saying all of that is bad. We could try to improve ourselves. But what often undergirds it is shame. And you think that somehow you have to be something else and any boundary that God gives you, living in this time, in this generation, with this group of people, like to be bounded in any way could not be loving. But do you see boundaries as an expression of his love and goodness? I was recently speaking with someone. We are about talking about sacrifice. And throughout our conversation, I realized that while he was talking about sacrifice, I was thinking of sacrifice a little differently. And I thought we meant the same thing, but we didn't. Every time he talked about sacrifice, he was thinking about loss. Every time I thought about sacrifice as he spoke about it, I was thinking about love. And so I asked him, let me ask you something. When you say the word sacrifice, what comes to mind? Loss or love? And he realized, well, it's loss. But sacrifice can imply both. Yeah, some aspect of sacrifice is giving up something, right? You're losing something. But another, act of, uh, another aspect of sacrifice, when it's truly loving or when it's truly good, is, is love. Like you're, you're giving up something, laying down your life because of what you love. And I, I guess something similar is at play with boundaries. You can either think about the boundaries God has given you in terms of what he's prohibited 
or what he's trying to preserve. Let me say that again. Think about the boundaries God has given you. Does your mind go to what he has prohibited or do you think about what he's trying to preserve? He's trying to give you life. He's preserving joy, goodness, health, peace, a relationship with him, a relationship with community. He's preserving good things, but if we don't think that it overflows from his goodness, you're only going to think of it in terms of loss and what he's trying to prohibit, not in terms of what is loving and what he's trying to preserve. We know the importance of boundaries, but we continue to exceed them because we don't believe it's a part of paradise, that it's good for us, that it's a part of the goodness of creation and that it overflows from his goodness. And as long as you obsessively focus on what you don't have or who you're not or what you lack, you won't see what it is that you do have. You have the unbounded goodness and love of God overflowing towards you. This morning when we were praying with volunteers, I asked uh, uh, we're, the, the group that was gathered together, what are the things that you think God desires today? And the reason is this morning as I was praying for our church, I thought about how I have all these desires for us as a community and I realized like, I'm not the only one with desire in this conversation, right? God is filled with desire too. And sometimes I, I approach God as if like I'm the only one with desire and he's dispassionate and he's unmoved and he's just waiting for me to kind of prod him with my desire and all of a sudden like God wants to do something. It's not the case. And so I asked him, what is it that God desires for us? We could pray his desires and his heart back to him. And we heard joy. We heard community. We heard faith, right? These are, and you could think of more things. What does God desire, right? In all of this, we, we don't see, the, we think of the things we don't have and we pray because of what we lack. We don't realize the things that we do have. The things that God desires for us that he's trying to preserve for us and all of it flows from the unbounded love and goodness of God. You see, he may have guarded the tree of life, but it's not because he doesn't want us to live forever. It's not because he doesn't want us to taste eternal life. It's because he wants to give it and redirect us to a different tree. The cross upon which Jesus died. We are not going to accept our limits and be diverted from that tree unless we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and see the unbounded, inexhaustible, unrelenting, pursuing love of God for us in Christ. He points us away from that to Jesus, to the cross that he died upon, and through his sacrifice we live. We confront the tree that becomes a symbol of his boundless love, overflowing and abundant, everlasting love. Do you receive the boundaries that God has given you in light of that tree? If you could think of the, call, the command to, to, to submit to a boundary in your life as the tree of knowledge in your life, are you able to accept that boundary by going to the cross of Calvary, the tree upon which Christ died, and receiving the unbounded goodness and love of God through the cross of Christ? I guess one way to close here is to ask the question I asked before. Where are you exceeding the boundaries God has given you? As, we think, as you think about the unbounded love and goodness of God, are you willing anymore to not just acknowledge the importance of boundaries, but maybe the goodness of what God has been telling you? Whether they're moral, physical, relational, financial, whatever it might be, is God calling you to embrace the goodness of creation and how he's made you? 
Is he calling you to see his goodness in it? We may need to acknowledge we have limits, but we can accept our boundaries when we realize there are no limits to his goodness and love.